Welcome to the APL Next Ed Minipod, where for a few minutes each week, academic leaders share insights and perspectives on the most important issues and opportunities facing academic teams. Learn how other schools are managing and strategizing for success as your host, CEO and founder of APL Next Ed, Kathleen Gibson, gathers and connects practical seeds of knowledge and experience from her guests. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the APL Next Ed Minipod. We're talking these last few weeks with women who are making sure that DEI goals, that's diversity, equity, and inclusion goals, are a priority at their institutions. We're talking about how we can move from taking baby steps to making much more significant strides towards reaching outcomes. And we're talking about the kinds of lessons these leaders have learned as they found success in meeting DEI goals. Today, we have Dr. Nicole Parsons Pollard, Associate Provost for Faculty Affairs at Georgia State University, who is using the foundational tools of data and innovation that have characterized GSU to reach their DEI goals. Uh, Welcome, Nicole. Thank you for having me here, Kathy. Well, it's my pleasure. I'd love to share a little of Nicole's bio before we jump into uh, what I think is going to be a very rich conversation. Uh, Nicole was appointed the Associate Provost for Faculty Affairs on July 1st, 2020. So right in the midst of all the Uh, change and all the challenges and opportunities that institutions had um, in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, She holds a PhD in public policy and administration from Virginia Commonwealth University, an MS in criminal justice from Virginia Commonwealth University, and a BS in mass communications from Virginia Commonwealth University. In her role as associate provost, she is responsible for creating, implementing, and championing a variety of faculty development programs to support and strengthen faculty in teaching and research, as well as leadership programming for department chairs and other administrators. She is also responsible for developing and implementing faculty policies and procedures for managing managing university awards and recognition events for faculty and assisting with promotion and tenure process. One of the highest priorities for her office is to provide leadership and direction in support of the report of the Commission for the Next Generation of Faculty, which is the result of a two-year faculty-led process to identify recommendations for building a diverse, equitable, and inclusive environment for faculty. Super excited to hear you talk a little bit about that initiative and what came out of uh, that faculty-led study. Uh, So again, welcome, Nicole. We're just thrilled to have you here and to have somebody of your stature, who is really using the tools uh, that are characterized by the institution, data and innovation, uh, to uh, become uh, uh, the institution that's really setting the benchmarks and setting the standards for achieving goals in this area of DEI. So welcome again. Thank you so much. Glad to have you here. So as we dive straight into this conversation, The topic is making outcomes a priority in DEI. One of the things, unfortunately, that we've seen, I think, over the last decade or so is that many schools have hired vice presidents of diversity. They've sort of checked boxes, if you will, in terms of taking first steps toward making this a priority at their institutions. But there seems to be lots of compelling reasons and even some compelling pressure uh, from outside organizations, from uh, creditors and from uh, boards and from uh, public and students uh, that this become much more of uh, 
a set of goals that has definable and achievable uh, outcomes and less about sort of uh, just just checking the box. I'd love to hear your perspective on sort of where we've been as it relates to uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, particularly for faculty on college campuses. And then uh, how do you think that that is shifting or changing in this era? Well, I do believe that the the sort of racial unrest that we saw over the past summer mm-hmm. has certainly propelled us in a different direction. And I do not think that it was an accident that we were all at home during the pandemic. I think had it been normal times with no pandemic and everyone at work doing what they normally do, we might have missed the story and it would have just been a, another unarmed black man dies. I do believe all of us being at home, working from home, watching the news in particular to find out what's going on with the pandemic and then seeing a person murdered. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that took people to a different place and it made people reflect upon not only what they were doing, but what their organizations were doing, what we could do differently. And it catapulted everyone, I think, into action versus what you sort of spoke about earlier, which was sort of maybe checking a box. Um, And and the reality is, is that there were a lot of institutions who hired chief diversity officers, and I don't blame those individuals at all. Mm-hmm. This is really hard work, and it's really hard to do when, even when you have the political will and people who want to move forward. Mm-hmm. Now imagining doing it when you don't have the political will and people are doing everything to put up obstacles to be able to do those kinds of things. So my hat goes off to the people who've been in this, these spaces for all of these years, mm-hmm. trying to get um, organizations to be able to do the right thing. And, um, and so now I think what we're seeing is people fully appreciating their presence in organizations and what they actually can do to be able to move the needle in regards to DEI work. So you really believe that it's this um, this moment in time when all of us were witness to this this atrocity, this sort of in our face reminder of a long legacy of of this sort of discrimination um, and this sort of hatred and this sort of um, injustice um, that became uh, the driving force for action. And, and did that happen, do you think, on boards? Did it happen in executive offices? I mean, as, as again, all, as you just all of us were home sort of watching this, uh, were presidents coming back and boards coming back and saying, okay, we got we to gotta get serious about this. And, and what impact does it have when you have the upper echelons of, of leadership sort of lending there, to your, your point, political clout to the issues and to the goals? Well, I think the reality is, is that in all of our organizations, um, leadership matters. And so if your leadership says that the bottom line is the most important thing, they hire people who believe that the bottom line is the most important thing. And that gets pushed down on everyone. If you hire leaders that believe that it's important that we treat our employees with honor and respect and pay them a decent wage, then the reality is, is that 
that's what the people at every other level also will often do. And so I think what you've seen is that this moment wasn't just about leaders though, it was about people leading from wherever they were in organizations. And so this moment became not only sort of from the bottom up, grassroots up, it came because people decided that they wanted to work for organizations that believed in certain things. And they pushed their organizations to, to say, what are your values? And what are we going to do about these things? And so I think we're seeing it now um, as we remain in the pandemic and the number of articles that are out about people who have left their jobs mm -hmm. and who are refusing to go back to the workforce. And while some may say that's because of the enhanced benefits that they were receiving from unemployment, the reality is, is that I think there's a lot of people who did a gut check mm -hmm. and realized, is this how I want the rest of my life to be? Mm -hmm. And if not, then this might be a good time to make that kind of change. And so I think that's what you're actually seeing. I do believe also when we, we talk about, um, I mentioned about us all watching the death of George Floyd on television. The reality is, is that social media plays a huge role in this. And this is a time like no other time. I was just talking to a relative the other day. And I think I am about 15 or 17 years older than she is. And the reality is, is that, some things just didn't take root because everybody didn't have a microphone. Everybody didn't have a camera. Everybody didn't have a way to tell the world what they were thinking, feeling, and seeing. Those things were only left to certain people, media outlets, people who had news articles. Um, and so I think we're in a definitely in a different realm as far as communication is concerned as well. And that matters and that makes a difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The lion's right history is what they used to mm -hmm. say, right. Is, uh, you know, and now we have lots of people telling their story and we have a, a new sort of oral history in the making with social media. That's really interesting. So what I heard you say too, is that, um, you know, that the top down matters, but the bottom up matters too. Yes. And sort of the grassroots. And, and this is where you can have real impact is when, when, when you have those sort of converging around agreement on what the goals are and working toward those goals. I'm curious in that, in that group of sort of grassroots, would you include students in there? Or do you feel like students are beginning to make decisions about matriculation based on the institution's policies in this regard? Oh, well, absolutely. I would, you know, I would dare say that um, students have all been an integral part in any social movement. I mean, even when we think about looking back at the civil rights movement, you look back at those young people and while young people look very different then I always wonder at how, um, how mature they look and how they were dressed and, and how they presented themselves as much more mature than they actually were. Mm -hmm. These were actual kids. These were college students. These were high school students who were marching and leading these actual movements. And so that's always been a part of the history of social movements. And so I think you see it again here today. Um, the reality is, is that um, there are institutions who are paying attention to their social media. We have entire departments in our institutions 
that follow what people are saying about us on social media. Mm -hmm. And so that we can respond and react, but also so that you could, it's another way of seeing how does my customer feel about our performance? And so, and I know people hate it when I say that students are customers, but the reality is, is that they pay for a service Mm -hmm. and we provide a service. It doesn't mean that they don't have to show up and do the things that they need to do. But the reality is, is that the average student today leaves college with around between 26 and $29,000 in debt. We owe them our absolute best. For sure. For sure. And I think one of the ways that at least folks in your role and, and people who are paying attention to these goals understand how we deliver our best is by having the opportunity for students to learn from diverse faculty, uh, diverse students, and and it cuts across many different intersections. I can recall teaching a long time ago, 25 years ago, and, you know, this this is the early 2000s, and having, you know, women say, oh, it's so interesting and and nice to have a mom, you know, in the classroom. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we're used to just having, you know, a different kind of professor, somebody who looks a little bit different, but um, it was really, it it felt good to feel as if I was in some way making others more comfortable to uh, pursue paths or to even pursue faculty positions, even though in their minds, they didn't really look like the quintessential faculty person. So I think these sorts of um, understandings that it's it's not only diversity for diversity's sake, it's diversity because of the impact it can have on students, the impact it can have on our culture, on our institutions and uh, and on our on our world for for that matter. I'm curious to kind of delve into this survey that you found yourself sort of the, person responsible for implementing some of the results and for taking uh, what happened over this period of time when faculty uh, really got together and and thought about very practical ways. I had a chance to look at it and I loved it because it is so practical. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, the next generation of faculty report, how it was generated, what your responsibility is in, in sort of observing and carrying out some of the recommendations there? Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, I came to Georgia State in July of uh, 2020. And so they had a group of faculty over two years, look at what they believe the next generation of the faculty should look like at Georgia State, and what diversifying the faculty would look like and what practical things, as you mentioned, could be done in order to achieve those goals. And so that all took place prior to my arriving. And as a matter of fact, when I applied for the position, I read the report and it was one of the things that really attracted me to the position. And um, now we have what is an implementation steering committee. And this is the committee that is responsible for helping to also move forward those initiatives that came out of the next generation report. And so the committee is charged with not only um, carrying out those things, but acting as a liaison with the provost and the provost office and producing an annual report on our actions and the outcomes of those things, but also providing some advice and guidance on some best practices that might be helpful in us achieving our goals. And so we have 
the thing that I love about Georgia State, I tell people, I started during the pandemic, but the reality is, is that we get stuff done. And so we have not stopped. We have decided that while we all might be trying to adjust to what this teaching remotely over that year, the return to campus and faculty's trepidation, and not just faculty, everyone's trepidation Mm -hmm. about what that might look like. The reality is, is that we still have things to do. Mm -hmm. And part of that is the responsibility that we owe to everyone in the organization, the faculty, staff, and the students. And so some of the initiatives that came out of that report included things like uh, inclusive hiring. My predecessor had already put into practice some inclusive hiring workshops and documents. We have continued those. We have sort of doubled down on those, doing a lot more workshops with search committees, Mm -hmm. talking to them about their practices. And what you find is that people, no one teaches you how to hire. It's probably one of the most important things that you can ever do. You being a business owner know that very well. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the reasons that most of our budgets are 80 to 90% about our personnel, Mm -hmm. because that's how important it is for us to be able to do what we do well. And so um, spending a lot of time talking about how do we really identify talent and what are the things that you can do to ensure that we diversify the pool that's available. And so those sorts of things, we've also, we've heard people talk a lot about the pipeline development, the fact that there aren't people of color graduating with advanced degrees in certain areas. And so Georgia State prides itself on graduating more Black students than any other institution in the United States. And so we see ourselves contributing in a way Mm -hmm. to that through our student population. Mm -hmm. And now we want to contribute to that in our efforts in pipeline recruitment. Mm -hmm. So um, the provost, when I arrived, had recently hired a special assistant for uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so Dr. Curtis Bird came to Georgia State and has been a great partner with my office in doing pipeline development work. He has reached out to uh, the Southern Regional Education Board, SREB, and they have a doctoral scholars program. Um, We even did some of those over uh, WebEx uh, so that faculty could meet newly minted doctoral students who are thinking Mm -hmm. about being in higher education. Same thing with the Mike McKnight Fellows Doctoral Fellowship. And so uh, Dr. Bird has really been focusing on that. Um, One of the other things is a, um, we're currently working on a uh, NSF uh, advanced grant and adaptation Mm -hmm. grant um, to focus on uh, STEM faculty. And that's in conjunction with Florida International University. Um, They, we've developed affinity groups as well as hosting things like diversity dialogues. One of the things that we found is that really having hard conversations is one of the most important things as well during this time. And listening to one another. And so those dialogues have been crucial to doing that as well. And so while I have been a great partner in many of those things, a lot of those things have come directly also out of the provost office and through the special assistant for DEI. And so that's been really helpful because we don't have a CDO. Um, at Georgia State. We don't have, um, we have an Office of Diversity through HR, but we don't have 
what comes when you have a chief diversity officer Mm -hmm. and that office that stretches across the campus. And so there've been some really great work going on, but it hasn't been as well coordinated as it could be Mm -hmm. if you had that kind of centralized office. And so that's why I said, I take my hat off to the people who've been doing this work for so many years and hoping that we find ourselves in a place and time where people are more open to what we really mean when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so I also applaud the provost for seeing that we needed to have someone in this space in order to be able to work with not only places like my office, but across the colleges as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you've said so much in there that I want to follow up on. Um, you know, one is you were attracted to the institution because of this study. And this really goes to what you said a few minutes ago, which is if we are going to be thriving institutions, we had better be attractive to a very limited pool. And so I, you know, I love this, especially in the context of faculty, you know, that this is sort of my, my wheelhouse and this idea that if you're going to have the best, you've got to, you've got to offer the best opportunity. And if you're going to offer the best opportunity, what does that mean? I think it, it means working with people who are different and complementary to you. I think it means a whole, whole lot of things, but this is such a win-win situation if in fact uh, these sorts of policies and these sorts of outcomes can be achieved because you're, you're not only providing this terrific service to the students by exposing them to many diverse perspectives and diverse diversity in all, all sorts of uh, contexts, but you're also, uh, you're also providing a tremendous uh, opportunity to attract the best talent. Um, and, and this goes to a second point you made. I mean, I think, you know, when I was teaching, uh, you know, there were folks who didn't love the idea of the fact that anything practical would come out of education because it somehow took away from the sacredness of learning for the sake of learning. And I think learning for the sake of learning is a, a value we hold as a society and central to democracy. But it's not exclusive or doesn't have to be exclusive to acquiring skills or, you know, seeing that we do need to operate our institutions in a way that uh, makes us sustainable. And so I think that those kinds of things I think are becoming more acceptable. I would love to dive a little bit more deeply too into some of the things that you said specifically the committee recommended. So um, creating these affinity groups, doing the training in the, in the hiring. So, you know, in higher ed, you're having a lot of siloed hiring, right? At department levels, sometimes at college levels, how are you making sure that you're kind of getting to those who, uh, you know, who are actually doing the hiring? And uh, so it sounds like you're helping to create pools for them, but how are you helping instruct them through that process in a way that helps them achieve the results they're looking for? So one of the things is that we do a um, best practices and faculty hiring workshop with all of the new department chairs. Department chairs play a key role in making sure that the hiring process not only adheres to all of the policies and the rules and those kinds of things, but the reality is, is that is that we have a good experience. And so um, to your point, when we hire the person is interviewing us just Mm -hmm. like we're interviewing them. Mm -hmm. If they're good, 
they have other options. Mm-hmm. You want them to choose you if that's what you would like to extend an offer. And so we have to understand how to provide equity and fairness in that process. Mm-hmm. But you're right. It happens at the departmental level, which I think is um, I, my best friend works in, in corporate America and she's just blown away at the fact in way in which shared governance actually shows up <laughs> in higher education, mm-hmm. because there is nowhere else where you get to hire the person who works beside you. There is nowhere else where you get to chime in on that person's evaluation and decide whether or not they are promoted or not. And so it's a great opportunity but it's one that should be taken extremely seriously. Mm -hmm. And so being able to have those workshops in particular with the department chairs to be able to show their leadership in this space, but also being able to talk to the search committees. And you would be amazed at the things that people think that they, they can't do. So we have to ask them all the same question, right? Yes, but you can ask a follow-up question. Oh, I can? Yes, you can. And so even small things like that, ensuring that that process gets you to the point where you have enough information to make a solid recommendation about who should be hired is so completely valuable. Mm -hmm. And so being able to work with faculty on that has been immensely satisfying But the other thing, not only do we have the implementation steering committee and the next generation report that we're working through, but we were also fortunate enough to administer um, the coach survey through Harvard. And we did that right before the pandemic hit. And so we got our data in uh, late July of 2020. And so every single college also has their own action plan. And out of the coach data, it showed that there were things that were also also on the next generation report. And so about diversifying the faculty, about ensuring that um, policies and procedures and things were administered equitably. And so we have a number of documents that are all leading us fortunately down the same road. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of those things that is going to be helpful because each college operates very differently and they all have their own different kind of cultural kinds mm-hmm. of things too. Mm-hmm. And so, so not just beyond the fact that the expectations for a particular faculty rank might be different in one college versus the other, but also it's once you hire the person, mm-hmm. once they're here. Do they feel comfortable? Mm-hmm. Do they have a sense of belongingness? Mm-hmm. And so it starts with the hiring, mm-hmm. but it doesn't end there. And that's one of the things that the Office of Faculty Affairs ensures that they try to support each of the colleges and the academic units with is to be able to support faculty throughout their entire life cycle. Okay, Nicole, this is fantastic. I am sorry to interrupt you, but we are going to have to take a pause here. And uh, there's so much rich content here. We're going to we're going to make this into two episodes. So all of you, please tune in and take a listen to the second in this series in which we're talking to uh, Nicole. Parsons Pollard, who is the associate provost at Georgia State University and doing amazing work in 
leading and setting standards uh, for DEI with faculty, staff, and administrators in higher education institutions. So please stay tuned for the next episode. And thank you so much for your for your comments uh, so far. And we look forward to the rest. A big thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Um, if you haven't tuned in before, you can find us at APL Next Ed uh, Minipod. Please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or iHeartRadio. As you know, we release a new episode each week in two formats, a podcast and a video. So you're welcome to learn in either format from our amazing guests. Uh, visit aplnexted.com slash podcast to access the full library of Minipod episodes. You can read more about our show guests there and see links to additional tools and resources mentioned by our guests. Uh, and so until we hear from Nicole again next time, I'm signing off and please uh, take care and be well. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to today's guest and thank you to you, our listeners. You can find out more about our guest in the show notes. We hope the APL Next Ed Minipod is a helpful resource to you and your teams. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your colleagues. The APL Next Ed Minipod is brought to you by APL Next Ed, the leading academic operations platform helping academic teams connect and collaborate in one place. To learn more about how APL Next Ed is helping schools streamline academic operations, visit aplnexted.com. <laughs>